James. He is concise and comprehensive. That's a rare combination. And presents to us a masterpiece on faithful living. Practical Christianity indeed. There's somewhat a danger, I think, in that terminology, practical Christianity, because we have a tendency, I fear, to look at things that are practical and say in our minds, isn't that cute? Oh, what a great idea that would be. But it seems to me, looking at the book of James a little more carefully, the, the application points that James presents come with a little bit of an edge. Probably the easiest way to see that edge is by researching the, the book itself and you see this concentration of imperative verbs. Now that doesn't mean much to most of us, but in general that's an action term. A word that carries the sense of a command. An expectation. There are in fact 62 of those in the book of James. 62. 62 go-do's. Now, now, specifically, at least as I break them down and look at them, there are really only 56 that apply to the reader, but still, that's remarkable. Well, what's in addition to that that strikes me is the use of questions. James couldn't bold print, and he couldn't italicize, and he couldn't underline, so what does he do when he wants to really press a point? He asks a question or a series of questions. It's kind of his exclamation. If you look at those 22 questions, you'll see them kind of grouped together most of the time. And you get into chapter 2, and you start looking at it, and he, he talks about the sin of partiality. Four questions. He talks about moving from there, the necessity of having a faith that works. Six questions. Chapter 3, beware your tongue, it's a dangerous thing. Two questions. At the end of chapter 3, you really got to have wisdom from above. And he asks a question. Chapter 4, beware the world. Four questions. Get into chapter 5. Prayer is powerful. Three questions. If you just look at that grouping, it's almost a thematic study of what James is trying to communicate to us in a sense. Now, if you're really good at math and probably better than I am, you notice that there are two left. Well, those two are in the context that we've been assigned to look at this morning. James chapter 4, 11 through 17. Now, if we just reduce those questions down to their essential elements, here are the questions. Who are you? Number two, what is your life? Those are compelling at their own right. And now let's have some fun. 
And let's go into the Scripture. James chapter 4. Let's begin reading verse number 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in point of fact, you have two different problems addressed in the text we're going to be looking at. And they're both handled in exactly the same way. Here's the problem, here's a question, here's a description of God to solve the problem. Both of them are exactly the same. They're related but different because the first problem is a problem with what they are saying. Verse 11, notice the great contradiction. Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. Right, that's a repulsive statement. Don't speak evil of one another, brothers. Now, now, literally what he says, according to those who know such things, stop speaking evil of one another. What is he describing? Well, literally, it's kind of a, a talking down. And you could be talking down to someone. You could be talking down about someone. But whatever the case is, it is an, it's a hostile statement because it has no spiritual objective whatsoever. It's merely a statement that's designed to mock or to ridicule, to revile, to degrade. It's just rambling on about someone to, we would say, run them down. In the context, he explains three additional charges. Why is that such a problem? What's the great problem with speaking evil about one another? Why, why is that something you don't want to do? For three reasons. Number one, if you participate in that kind of action, you are judging without law. The one who judges or speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Now you notice something interesting. There's a, a series of phrases that take place here. That's the only one that doesn't use the word law. Because what they were doing is they were making judgment without law. Now it is point of fact that Christians are actually commanded to do some judging. The word is not inherently wrong or evil. In fact, the Bible commands it. You are to take the standard and test everything and hold fast that which is good, simply stated. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Test it all. But that is not what's happening here. These are not sincere Christians who are taking the law of God and carefully applying it to a situation they are in and trying to discern, is this right or is this wrong? 
These are people who literally say, I need no standard, I am the standard, and you don't measure up, therefore I will just talk. That's the problem. Speaking, judging without the law. When they do that, there's a second problem. When you do that, he says, what you are actually doing is you are not speaking evil about the person, you are actually speaking evil about the law. Now drink that in. James says whenever you participate in this kind of behavior, you are actually slandering, condemning, degrading, and mocking the law of God. Because His law has always said, Leviticus 19, verse number 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Certainly that would include don't slander, don't mock, don't gossip, don't demean, don't run them down. James 2 verse 8 speaks of that. He quotes that Leviticus 19 passage. If you would really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And you recognize James is not the only person to revert back to that commandment because Jesus did the same thing when he's Put on the spot. What's the great commandment of the law? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 39. Third problem. When you speak evil against someone, make no mistake about it, you are not a doer of the law. What had they done? Instead of ordering their lives under the law of God, they had positioned themselves over the law of God, and by putting themselves there, they began not to do that which the law commanded. Be doers. Is that not what James teaches in chapter 1? Whoever looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres or continues in it, he being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, this one will be blessed in his doing. Three big problems. Now look at the question again. At the end of verse number 12, But who are you to judge another? Think about it. Who are you? In point of fact, the people who know the languages will tell us that you occupies an emphatic place in that statement. It's the equivalent of our being at, at the job or whatever, and we learn that someone gets a promotion that they don't deserve. They're unqualified for. And our immediate response is to go, him? Her? That's what happens here. You are judging. You? 
That's a Bible slap down. Who are you? So, so what they had done, you see, they had looked at the general concept, the term of judging, and they had misplaced the you. Now, that's not a spelling error. That's not the letter U, that's the word U. Because here's what they did. Judge me, you, judge neighbor. They had the you in the wrong place. What he says is you need to correct that. You need to understand that there is a judge, number one, who will assess you, number two, and your brother, number three. They had a misplaced you. So that question, it's not actually unique to James. In Romans chapter 14, verse 4, we have almost the identical question. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or that he falls. And then with, a, with another biblical slapdown, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. we get the description of God. There is, verse 12, only one lawgiver and judge. Only one. Now look very closely at your Bible in that verse because what you see there is the big foam finger. He's number one. There are many places in the Bible this happens. And if we had foam fingers that could spring from our Bibles, we would be better Bible students. He's number one. That's exactly what Jesus said in the parallel in Mark chapter 12 when He's asked about the great command. Hear, O Israel, quoting from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is He really hammers down. Wait a minute. You have no. Who are you? You weren't the lawgiver, therefore you're not the judge. There's only one lawgiver, therefore there is only one judge. See what's happening? They have a problem with what they're saying about each other. I don't know. In a world that's conditioned to practice instant messaging instead of very careful meditation, I, we might have a problem there too. Stop speaking evil of each other. Problem number two. Verse number 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then 
vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Oh, now we have a different problem. Now we have a problem with what they are not saying. Different idea. Now, now the problem basically is overconfidence. We've got this figured out. And if you will but immerse yourself in the text, what happens to you is you are transported into the meeting room. And you see a group of people surrounding a table. And on top of that table is a map of the region. And on the wall, you have a calendar. And maybe you have the other things too. You've got the core values, and you've got the performance expectations, and the performance goals, and you've got the little thermometer thing that's built up. You've got all that around. And all of this meticulous, they were not having a problem with diligence. When? Today or tomorrow. Who? We? What are we going to do? Go. Where? To this town. What, how long are we going to be there? We're going to spend a year there. What are we going to do? We're going to trade. What will that cause? Profit. Money, money, money. Look, we've done this in every franchise that we've set up all throughout Galilee. This will work here too. And if we will, but go back to our core principles. What's going to happen is we're going to profit. Now you'll notice a couple of things. I mean, it's a very detailed plan, but I don't think that's why it's here. I think it's here to communicate to us human planning is really flawed from start to finish. The best of human plans, the best of human designs, the most ingenious thing we might ever create is from start to finish flawed. Look at the end of this. We're going to make money. We have the winning formula figured out. We know how to do it. Let's just go do it again. And if we will do this, we will have money. We're going to make profit. And that profit's going to depend on how faithful we are to our plan. Well, that tells you how they began, what were they out for, but that's a problem. The second problem is greater. This plan began with when, not who. Not the right who. It began with, we're going to do this tomorrow. They had completely excluded God. You see no reference to God anywhere in that plan. Wow. Dependence on God. Where's it at? Nowhere. And that manifests a profound kind of ignorance. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. None of us do. Teach us, Lord, Psalm 90, verse 12, to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. And even if there is a tomorrow, we don't know what's going to happen. Boast not about tomorrow, for you do not know, Proverbs 27, 1, what a day may bring. Ignorance. And watch how the question brings it home. What 
is your life. We're fortunate here the Bible answers it. It is You know, the cold morning day, you're out, it's brisk, and you exhale. What is your life? You are... <sighs> we go far too far when we say life is here today and gone tomorrow. That is a profound overstatement. What the Bible teaches here is your life is atmosphere. So take your hand and reach out and grab you a bunch of atmosphere. Your life is missed. It's appearing at the same time it is vanishing. And even though it's here doing a function, it really has no substance at all. Now, I think we get that because we've lived long enough. Every person really in this room has basically been through that experience where we learn life is brief. And we, we know what Job meant when, when Job is talking about this in that very famous passage, Job chapter 14, verse 1, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. And he flees like a shadow and does not continue. What is your You are missed. You appear for a little while. And you vanish away. Notice that helps us with our priorities. Psalm 39, verse number 4, would basically encourage us to, God, make us know our end. And help me know what is the measure of my days. Let me know, is your bumper sticker, how fleeting I am. Let me know how temporary I am. Because that will help me with my priorities. That will help me match up with what Jesus expects. Whenever He said, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world? Money, 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 money. And lose his own self. Lose his own soul. Instead, the description of God. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. God's sovereignty. God's absolute sovereignty. We've already seen it once. He's appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. He's the judge. But here we see it again. 
It is his sovereignty, sovereignty that determines not only what the outcome of the events of our day will be today or tomorrow, but he is the one who determines if we are here today or tomorrow. It's all within his providence. It's all under his control. And that is a profound statement. Boy, that we need to keep in mind. You'll recognize with me that I hope that you will never in your Bible find a more sincere depiction of this terminology than whenever you meet Jesus on the ground in Gethsemane. And you see Him there. And you listen to Him there. And you taste the dust in His mouth. And you know the suffering and what He's praying for relief from the Father because He's bombarded by the sins of the world. He knows the suffering that's coming and He's begging for relief. And from His lips come your will be done. Unfortunately, sometimes we might be inclined to use that terminology, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, as this mindless statement because we've been conditioned to know we have to say it. It's like, good morning. How are you? Bless his heart. Mindless, mindless talk. Well, I mean, we'll do that. Oh, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. Lord willing. <coughs> we'll get together and do that tomorrow. Oh, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. Lord willing. That is not what this passage is teaching. This passage is not teaching a magic incantation. It's not conditioning us to mindlessly say something. The text is teaching us to have an absolute, 100%, absolutely secure dependence on God for everything. It is the sincere heart of the Christian that manifests an absolute attitude. God, I need you. And I'm content with what you give me. When, why wouldn't we depend on it? He gives as He wills, and He wills to give. And He does so generously and without reproach. James 1, verse 5. He gives good gifts. James 1, 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And He gives universally. Acts 17.25 He Himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Oh, we should depend on God. Now think about our culture. Don't we live in a time, as all people have, where physical and financial security and prosperity are the goals of most? Aren't we conditioned to fear the newscast about the dollar crashing? Yeah, maybe, maybe we have some room here to think too. Two problems, what they were saying, what they were not saying. 
So in this context where you, you're, you're learning about something they are doing that the Bible says don't do and something that God expects that they are not doing, it's very interesting to me that the next two verses describe the two separate pathways by which we can violate the will of God. It's another underscore of sorts. Listen up. You can violate the will of God two ways. And he begins to explain it. Now, succinctly, that is taught in the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay the much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. For if the word declared by angels, the Old Testament messengers, proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Transgression, disobedience. James does exactly the same thing. Look what he says in verse number 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Well, point number one, not all boasting is bad either. I mean, if you start just studying that word out, the word just means to, to take glory and express praise because of that glory. And that's why in places like Galatians 6, around verse 14 or so, the apostle says he glories in the cross. Well, that's a good thing. That's a boast that is good. But again, that's not what's happening here. They weren't boasting in what was good. They were boasting in hmm, arrogance. You know where arrogance begins? The, think, the thought that I'm something. That's where it starts. But the word is interesting. If for no other reason, the word is interesting because in the New Testament it only appears one other time. And it's not translated arrogance. If we were to turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we begin reading about number 15. The Bible says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust or the desires of the flesh, the lust or the desires of the eyes, and Arrogance is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now that has a remarkable bearing on the passage we're looking at. Because it is that sense of self-glory. Look at me and how independent I can be. It is that feeling of arrogance that causes us to believe within our hearts that the things we see with our eyes may be grasped with our flesh. And that causes all kinds of trouble. You can sin actively, participate in evil by the act of transgression. Number two, 
There's a passive pathway to sin. That's verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Evil sin. Evil sin. You miss the mark. You miss the target. You're off base. Off base with God. Now recognize, this is a recurrent theme in the book of James. It's the double-minded man once again. In James 1, 7 and 8, the double-minded man is the believer that prays to God for something but doubts. So James says he believes and he doubts. He believes and he doubts. He believes and he doubts. In his mind, he has two competing rules, two competing minds. The same thing here. He knows what to do, but he does not do what he knows. He knows what to do, but he does not do what he knows. He knows what to do, but he does not do what he knows. Now that's startling. Because it is equally wrong in the eyes of God to do wrong as it is to fail to do what is right. And in the book that's all about these varying situations where we find ourselves having to make a choice, do I take the will of God in and apply it or do I just ignore it altogether? That is profoundly relevant because there is one lawgiver and judge and he is able to save and to destroy and the tool that he uses to make that discernment is the law that he has inspired under which he has placed us to receive judgment. That's just another way of saying sin is serious business. So what do we do? What? Well, that's why it matters. It matters because sin is... Sin puts us under scrutiny of God and susceptible to His eternal destruction. So as an alternative, perhaps we would think about two superior pathways, both from the book of James. Turn with me to chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, perhaps we would better spend our time and energies if we stopped running down neighbors and brothers and started rescuing some wanderers. That might be a better use of our time. It's certainly a better standard because it isn't mine. Notice it's the truth that they've wandered away from, not my, my personal preference or suppositions about it. It's the truth. And the objective is more noble. It's not just to cut you down because, well, I'm better than you. I know more than you. I've thought about this more than you. Or I don't like you. No, the objective is not to cut them down. It's to lift them up. To save the soul. That's one thing we could do. How about this one? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, let's 
drop in the middle of a context and begin in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving. Without giving them what is needful for the body. What? What good is that? Hmm. Suggest to you that we could give from the prosperity that He has given us in His will to do His will. Now, that's important for a number of reasons. If for no other reason, it helps us appreciate the fact that other people's needs are more important than our wants. But the other thing it does is it fulfills the expectation of Scripture, articulated again in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 28, beginning, 27, I think, beginning. Do not withhold good to him to whom it is due, or to those to whom it is due, while it is in your power to do it. And do not say to your neighbor, go, come again tomorrow and I will give it when you have it with you. There is not a blessing that God has given that we don't possess in this very moment and He has not promised us another day in which to use them to bless other people. So let us remember who is in charge The best way I think we do that, chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Humble yourself. Both of the problems share the issue of raising self above the law of God. If we will learn to better speak about each other, rescuing, not reviling, if we will make it our place to use the blessings that He has given us instead of seeking our own prosperity, I believe we will be better positioned to remember He who is in charge of eternal destinies. There is one lawgiver and judge. And also help us remember there is one gift giver and He gives to us abundance of His mercy according to His will. And it is a prayer of mine that together we study that text so that we can remember who's in charge.